Well, I'd like to share a, a story, a little bit of how I first came to Christ, a little bit. And uh, when I first accepted Christ, it was at the age of 19, and I had a great job as a banquet chef uh, at the Navigators Conference Center called Glen Erie in Colorado Springs. And this was uh, just an awesome place to work. Facility-wise, they have like 500 acres right next to the Garden of the Gods, and uh, also, they were paying for my culinary school, so it was like a crazy awesome bonus to not only work and get paid under some great chefs, but also to have them provide for culinary school as well. And uh, I don't know if some of you have ever seen the show. It's called uh, Hell's Kitchen. It's like this reality uh, chef show. Well, kind of the premise of the show is you have like these 20 or so uh, apprentice chefs, and they have a project each week as they're voted on by the main chef, and, and usually one of them leaves uh, per week a reality show, right? And, uh, but part of the show, as they're working on their project for the week, is their main chef, uh, Ramsey's there. And pretty much the whole time, he's just swearing and yelling at them uh, completely. So half of the show is like, bleep, 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 chicken, bleep, 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 cook. And he throws their pan in the dish, and, and they start all over again. Well, uh, the executive chef that I was privileged to work under, who had a wealth of information, was exactly like the chef Ramsey. Uh, continually yelling and continually critiquing, and, and in some parts it was good, but in most of the time it was frustrating and, and hard to, to get up and go to work every day. Well, I grew up in a home where yelling at the top of our lungs was the norm, and whoever could yell the loudest and the most passionate would win the day. And needless to say, I don't enjoy yelling at all. And because of this experience as a child, I have a very, very short fuse for being yelled at. Well, one day, uh, it's a Mother's Day banquet uh, at, at Glen Erie here, and we're serving about 1,500 people buffet style, and each chef is over a certain area. Uh, some are over bread, dessert, uh, meat carving, whatever it happens to be. Well, I happen to be over the veggie station that day and Chef Francis was really the executive chef there was really critiquing how I was sautéing these green beans very loudly and in my face and uh, I completely completely lost it like I've never lost it before and took this hot sauté pan of green beans and I threw it at him pan green beans and all uh, right at his leg <laughs> well my anger in that moment exposed the unresolved anger that was in my heart. And it is unresolved anger that lingers and lingers in our hearts that leads to murder. And it is unresolved anger that Jesus sets out here in this command to free us from. Today we're going to continue back the journey on the Sermon on the Mount. And before moving into our text this evening that was read in Matthew uh, 5, 21 through 26. I'd like to just do a quick mini synopsis recap of what Chris mentioned last week in the Hinge passage because it's so important for us to keep that in mind. Now, Pastor Chris uh, a couple weeks ago mentioned that in the Sermon on the Mount, the first section on the Beatitudes is about who is in the kingdom and the second part is on the commands. Or better said, the second half of the sermon that we're beginning to go through now is the meat of abundant life within the kingdom of God. And today is our first passage as we walk through this. And one more other thing that Chris mentioned in this hinge passage, that Jesus, in fulfilling the law, is recovering the original ethical intent of the law. 
Now, as we turn to and looking at these commands, it is very, very important to keep what the hinge passage is doing for us as we look at the rest of the commands. It's crucial for two reasons. The first is, is really understanding healthily the hinge passage. It will keep us from not turning the commands into a legalistic approach toward life. That is very, very key because it's very easy to do when we come up to a command in Scripture. Second, this hinge passage helps us to remember that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love for God and love for neighbor. And I'd like real quickly here, as we just have read, I'd like to read again our passage here in Matthew 5.21. So if you want to turn to me again, or if your finger's already there, I'll read it here. And this is out of uh, the ESV. It's a little bit different than what was read. You have heard it... You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, Raka, will be liable to Gehenna, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift to the altar there, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, before jumping right into the text, I'd like to set the context for the next six commands in uh, Matthew chapter 5. So bear with me for just a moment as I kind of paint this canvas that we have here that commands, uh, uh, that has the rest of the commands here in 5. There's six commands here. And Bruner puts these six commands in two categories. The first category is moral. So the first three commands are moral, and the second three commands are political. Now, each of these six commands have this triadic structure. This is going to be kind of a funky thing, but it's going to be the main theme as we walk through each of these commands, because each one has a triadic Structure and it's very key to keep this in mind as we walk through it. So the triadic structure is best stated by this uh, Fuller professor, Stason. And this is what he says concerning the triadic structure that's in each of these commands that we look at in Matthew 5. Seeing the triadic structure helps us to see the way of deliverance in the teachings, their basis in grace, their participation in the good news of the breakthrough of the reign of God. And as is usual in in triads, the emphasis is on the third member, not the second member. And this is key. None of the third members is a prohibition. They are not hard teachings, and they are not hard ideals, high ideals. They are transforming initiatives. They point the way of deliverance from the vicious cycle, which is in the second tier, the second triad, and seeing the, the, the triadic structure transforms the reading of the Sermon on the Mount so that it teaches grace-based transforming initiatives that allow us to live in freedom. So basically what Stason is saying here is he's pointing out that most of the time when these uh, 
passages and these commands have been taught, all the key has been on the second tier, which is a vicious cycle. Now our headings look like this. They're the, the, the three triadic structures. First we have traditional righteousness, the vicious cycle, and the transformative initiative. And so what it looks like here in our passage in Matthew 5 is the traditional righteousness is verse 21. The vicious cycle is verse 22. And the transforming initiative is verses 23 through 26. And this is how we're going to look at each passage as we walk through the text here. So verse 21, the traditional righteousness. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now this is a reference to the sixth command of the Ten Commandments given, by, given to Moses by Yahweh, recorded for us in Exodus. Now I know for myself, and I think for most of us, we actually bypass the sixth commandment as easier than any other commandment there are. And 99% of us most likely won't kill anybody, so it's pretty easy to just pat ourselves on the back saying, hey, I at least got one out of ten, good to go, I'm not even going to think about it anymore. Well, one of my professors up at Regent College, uh, Daryl Johnson, says it perfectly here on what the, the bottom line of the sixth commandment is. He says this, The sixth commandment is a protest against inhumanity. It is a divine protest against inhumanity. It's the Creator's protest against inhumanity. And what we have here in Matthew 5 is a call to bring our hearts to the foot of the cross where human inhumanity is most unjustly and violently manifested and where ironically it is healed. So what is going on here when Jesus refers to the sixth commandment in this Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is deepening Yahweh's protest against inhumanity. Jesus exposes the unresolved anger in our hearts from which murder emerges. Now we can restate the sixth commandment then this way. No human being has the authority or the right to take the God-given life of another human being. Now, Daryl mentions that in the act of murder, there are two claims being made. The first claim, the goal achieved by this act of murder is of greater value than the God-given life of the person murdered. Meaning, when someone else kills another person, he or she is claiming my status, my financial security, my lifestyle, my desire to get even is greater value than your life. And the second claim is that claim is, uh, is the claiming in this goal that it's achieved such a value that it justifies taking into one's own hand the sole prerogative of God. Since God is the only one to give life or to take life, the act of murder is idolatry because it's a human being presupposing to exercise the role of God. Walter Zimmerle, in his uh, Theology of the Old Testament, says this concerning the Sixth Commandment. It would be wrong to interpret this command as embodying the notion of the absolute sanctity of human life. What is protected is not life itself, but it's the life accorded a person by Yahweh. 
Life is sacred not because it is life. Life is a gift from God. Every human life is a gift from God. My life is a gift from God. Your life is a gift from God. Every human being on earth, their life is a gift from God. And only God has the right to give it, and only God has the right to take it. Every human being, however problematic, however evil, is the work of God. Every human being, whatever the circumstances which conceived him or her, is a creation of God. You shall not take into your hands the right of another person's life. And based, is what, uh, uh, based on what has been at the center of a lot of the news media in America lately, we all should be convicted of this. Summing up what uh, 21, this traditional righteousness, is saying to us is this. Jesus is deepening Yahweh's protest against inhumanity by exposing the unresolved anger in our hearts from which murder emerges. Now looking at the second point in our triadic structure, the vicious cycle. And this is the one we often get stuck in. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his, his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to Gehenna. At the beginning of this verse, we have a very, very emphatic I. Ego. And Bruner states that this word may actually be the most important word in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Where have we seen this before? Where in Scripture have we seen someone who has authority giving ethical commands on the top of a mountain? This is something only Yahweh does. We are told this story, again referring back to Exodus, and here we have Jesus standing on a mountain giving commands saying, You have heard it say, said, but I say to you, I am who I am, says to you. Only Yahweh has the authority to give ethical commands on a mountain. Jesus says here, I say to you. Brunner goes on to say here, on this point, that Jesus is relocating all religious and ethical authority. And here is the real contrast that Jesus is doing here. From Torah to himself. From now, Jesus is Lord even over Scripture. And just as Pastor Chris showed us a couple weeks ago, Jesus does not displace Scripture by saying this. But now, what Jesus does is he assumes a messianic place over Scripture as its authorized interpreter. So, what does this authorized interpreter of Scripture give us here? After he says, I say to you. This is what he says. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to Gehenna. I don't know about you, but when I hear what Jesus says here, I really get debilitated. I know how often I get angry at people. I simply can't avoid being angry. I can't help but get frustrated when I pull in line at Costco to get gas and my northern Canadian friends have a trunk full of gas cans that they're filling up the entire country with. I can't help but get frustrated. So what do we do? What do we do at this point when we can't avoid being angry? And what often happens when we look at this passage here 
is we think that what Jesus is saying is this hard teaching or this high ideal that's just impossible to, to live out. It's just something we can't live up to. Well, this kind of thinking is wrong. It's simply a misinterpretation of what Jesus is on about in this statement. The anger that is mentioned here by Jesus is not even a command not to be angry. It's a participle. It's a present participle meaning being angry, an ongoing continued anger. Jesus is showing us here that the attitudes we carry around are already public acts, real deeds which are answerable before God. Jesus is forbidding here the everyday anger with our brothers and sisters and neighbors that we carry around with us by which we hurt so many people. So here's a description of what this vicious cycle does for us. Your boss, your boss gets yelled at your boss. Then your boss comes and yells at you. Then you go and yell at the administrative assistant. Then your administrative assistant goes and yells at their spouse. Then their spouse yells at their children. And then the children yell at the cat. This is the vicious cycle that we get in with our anger. And N.T. Wright on this point says that if part of human maturity is learning how to recognize your anger and deal with it before it gets out of control, we simply have to come to the point that most of us are just not very mature. And part of this immaturity that we carry around with us goes from continual harboring anger, heightening to sarcastic remarks and the insults to other human beings. These sarcastic and insult remarks express themselves here in two ways. By saying raka, or insulting things to our brothers and sisters, this brings uh, expression for, for contempt for a person's head. It's saying, you're stupid. And saying more, or moron, you fool, expresses contempt for a person's heart. You scoundrel. And in this verse, we have this parallel escalation. We go from anger toward a person, liable to judgment, then from calling a person stupid, being liable to the council, and then from going to calling a person scoundrel, being liable to Gehenna, or the hell of fire. Now Chris told me, I get a free pass in talking to you guys about hell. So I'm going to use it here. This isn't the last time we meet Gehenna, and he is going to expound on that for us. And uh, thank you, Chris. Now, Daryl sums up this vicious cycle this way. And it's a bit of a lengthy quote, but Daryl just says it way better than I could, so bear with me here. Jesus is not saying that nursing and uttering sarcastic and insulting words are murder. Anger is not murder. Sarcasm is not murder. Insults is not murder. Anger and insults are ugly systems of a desire to get rid of somebody who is in the way. And yes, sarcasm and insults are forms of character assassination. But Jesus is not saying that anger, sarcasm, and insults are murder. What he is saying is that behind, beneath, and prior to the act of murder is the act of nursing anger, which spills over into sarcastic remarks, and then which spills over into insulting words. He is telling us that homicide, the ultimate act of inhumanity, comes out of the deep reservoir of our unresolved anger. 
The incarnate lawgiver is telling us that nursing anger is just as displeasing to God as murder, just as damaging to relationships as murder, and just as deserving of judgment as murder. He is telling us that uttering casual, sarcastic remarks is just as displeasing to God as murder, just as damaging to relationships as murder, and just as deserving of judgment as murder. He is telling us that verbally insulting one another is just as displeasing to God as murder, just as damaging to relationships as murder, and just as deserving of judgment as murder. Can you feel how debilitating these words are? And if we hear these words without the transformative initiative at the end of the passage, we will get stuck and these words will slay us. But there are few words like these that introduce us so effectively to the need of God's grace in our life. And we need to recognize that we indeed do break God's commands and that we truly need to be desperate for the inbreaking of God in our life. Praise God for the grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. This brings us to the third and last section of our triadic structure, the transforming initiative. Now what I mean by transforming initiative is that these, com these commands, now here it is, these commands transform the person who is angry into an active peacemaker. It transforms the relationship of one of anger to a peacemaking process. And best of all, it hopes to transform the enemy into a friend. Now remember, when I started off mentioning in the section on the Sermon of the Mount, we're concerned with Jesus' commands toward the abundant life in the kingdom. Yet, Jesus has yet to give us a command in this passage. So if it's not in verse 21 or 22, then what are we commanded to do? That we might participate in this transforming initiative of abundant living. The commands that Jesus gives through verses 23 and 26, there's five of them. And they're all imperatives. And an imperative simply means a, a command, uh, a volition of one's will upon another. These are the five imperatives. Leave, go, be reconciled, offer, and make friends. So then these five initiatives are in essence then, right, a short course to Jesus telling us how to control our anger, right? Or these five initiatives here, they're Jesus giving us clues how to justify our anger, right? Or maybe Jesus is giving us new creative ways in these imperatives on how to ignore our anger and just stuff it away and forget about it, right? Absolutely not. What they do, alright, and here it is, they teach us how to deal with our anger. Are you ready for it? This is like crazy rocket science. Just try to remember this. It's insane, okay? The only way to deal with anger, okay? Is everybody ready? Alright? The only way to deal with anger is to deal with it. And deal with it quickly. Or better said, deal with the person with whom we are angry or whomever is angry with us. The, the first part here of dealing quickly with our anger has to do with worship, the religious person. 
Reading now verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First, go be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Alright, now four of our five imperatives are found in these few verses. So you can sense how important these particular imperatives are specifically concerning our worship. And this is a very striking thing that Jesus is doing here. An extraordinary thing that he's doing. Jesus is telling us that reconciliation takes precedence even over our worship. Over our worship? Over communion? Over singing songs and hymns? Over giving out of our generosity? Over any and all worship, reconciliation with others comes preeminently first. Jesus here, imagine someone's getting, someone getting all the way to the temple courtyard, buying a sacrificial animal on the way, and remembering some relationship that has gone wrong. The scene is actually almost comic. It takes three days to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, where most of uh, Jesus' hearers lived. He cannot seriously have imagined an anxious worshiper leaving a sacrificial animal living there by the temple of Jerusalem while he goes back, makes reconciliation, and uh, comes back a week later to return to Jerusalem. And N.T. Wright says that here, as in other places, Jesus is exaggerating to make his point clear. The point is that you must live day in and day out, day by day in such a way that when you come to worship, all, in all manners, it doesn't matter, there is no anger between you and your neighbor and your brother or sister. Leave. Go. Be reconciled. Offer. The last imperative in verses 25 and 26 is concerned with life outside of worship in the secular. It is simply this. Make friends. And not just make friends with anyone, but make friends with your enemy. Make friends with your accuser. Verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser and you, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The key word here is the adverb quickly. Quickly. Quickly, Paul says in Ephesians 4, before the sun goes down on your anger. Quickly, before our hearts turn into a reservoir of bitterness and resentment toward others. Quickly, we must deal with it quickly. And make friends. In conclusion, I would like to offer four ways to take and deal with the anger, sarcasm, and insults that arise out of our internal inhumanity. The first way is to deal with anger quickly. As I had mentioned earlier, we must realize our own heart's capacity for inhumanity. Realize that there are truly times where I want to get rid of the person who is in my way. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to recognize our heart's own capacity for inhumanity. The second way to deal with anger quickly. Confess our inner inhumanity. We need to 
tell God what we see in ourselves, banking on the promise that when we do, we are forgiven and cleansed. The greatest help for me in this area is praying through the Psalms, especially the really hard Psalms that I try to avoid, actually, by saying to myself, I I just can't relate to what they're saying. I can't relate to pray in that way. I can't relate to confess in that way. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you today that I am a pro at this and I do this well. Well, it's not the case. I don't. And I struggle a lot. I struggle with the gross inhumanity that is in me. I struggle with the thought that my inhumanity is just too much to be forgiven of. So what I often end up doing is I pretend it's not there by simply not confessing. And let me tell you today, there is great freedom in confession. Though I don't do it well, and, that, and though I don't do it as often as I need to, I am utterly convinced of the promise that when I do, I am forgiven and cleansed. But I need to be reminded of that continually and often. So, this is why for me, accountability with another human being who recognizes their gross inhumanity having been saved by grace, is so, so important to me. I need it. Confess our inner inhumanity. The third way in dealing with anger, sarcasm, and insults is to forgive those who have inflicted their inhumanity on us. We need to to decide to forgive as we have been forgiven. And if we simply say we cannot do it, We need to ask God for the grace to be able to forgive others. An unforgiving spirit will eat us up. And finally, it will express itself internally by ulcers and headaches and all sorts of physical pain. Somewhere along the line, we need to decide not to murder ourselves by unforgiveness. We need to decide quickly and be free of the hatred, the need to get even, and the need for an apology. Forgive others as you, as you have been forgiven. The fourth and final way in dealing quickly with our anger, sarcasm, and insults in this transforming initiative is to reach out to those and try to reconcile. We may not succeed, but we can try. We should go out of our way to reconcile hurt relationships. God went so far to reconcile the broken relationship that he had with us that he gave his one and only son to die on a tree that we might live. There is no more broken relationship deeper than that which was between God and us. And there is no more costly of a thing than what it cost for us to have our relationship restored with God in Christ Jesus. We might be further stomped on and trampled over. We might feel like a fool or even be criticized. But at least the inhumanity is no longer boiling in our own hearts. At the cross, the lawgiver breaks the power of inhumanity. How? The lawgiver takes all the inhumanity upon himself. Inhumanity breeds counterviolence. Violence breeds counterviolence. At the cross, the chain of violence is broken. The living God absorbs the full onslaught of human inhumanity. The cross is the protest against inhumanity taken to the limit. 
Are you harboring any resentment against anybody today? Are you holding a grudge? Are you letting anger fester? Do you feel envy or greed? Are you bitter about not being forgiven or about how you have been treated? We need to deal with it. And we need to deal with it now. And we need to deal with it quickly. We need to bring it to the crucified one. There is one thing we can do about it. We can bring it to the cross. We can bring it to the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your grace is so sufficient for us. And we need it. We thank you for Matthew preserving these beautiful words on the Sermon of the Mount that day. Lord, that we should be so gifted, so privileged to have the personal God living with us and instructing us. Lord, we are broken. Lord, we have inhumanity brewing in us. And all of us deal with it in different ways, whether it's harboring anger, sarcastic res- uh, remarks, insults. Father, we want to be free. And Lord, we need you to give us the grace and the power through your spirit to bring it to the cross. We need others to help carry us when we can't carry it to the cross. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the freedom that we are truly given and the transformation that we have. We thank you. We thank you. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.